Hello, everybody. Uh, this episode is a one-off special. Uh, last week, I was invited down to the Riverhouse Barn uh, in Walton-on-Thames in Surrey uh, to take part in a Q&A all about 1923, the book that I uh, uh, wrote and published this summer. And it was all a fundraiser for a wonderful charity down in Walton-on-Thames called Red Start, who um, work to prevent homelessness and early interventions to uh, make sure that people have a roof over their head in that area where... It might surprise you to know that um, there are some of the biggest inequalities in health and wealth outcomes in the country. Um, and I think it's particularly apt in the light of uh, the recent interventions from the Home Secretary. Anyway, Andy Robertson interviewed me on stage. I really enjoyed um, the conversation and uh, it was a packed out evening in front of a live audience and we, we chewed the cud all about 1923 and I think, I hope, it might be of interest, certainly to those of you who've read the book, but even if you haven't read the book, I think it might be of interest. Um, and if you like what you hear, please do go to the link on the show notes and support Rent Start, who put on um, this uh, event as a fundraiser. So any donation, however small or big, would be, I think, enormously important and gratefully received. And in the meantime, just enjoy the podcast. Rent Start is a charity working in the borough of Elmbridge people who are facing or experiencing homelessness. Um, we house around 140 people a year and we support around 600 people who are in that situation as well. So every penny from the ticket sales tonight will go towards the work that we are doing. Um, and I have to say, first of all, thank you to Ned for coming to do this event. I also want to thank the Riverhouse Barn who have given us this venue absolutely free tonight as well. So can we show our appreciation first of all for all of those? If you want to find out more about what we do and what the Riverhouse Barn do, we're both organisations that rely on volunteers and rely on funding as well. So you can chat to us in the bar afterwards and you can find out how you can get involved. So I'll stop talking about all of that and I'm going to introduce to you the voice of the Tour de France, author, broadcaster, journalist and podcaster. Please welcome Ned Bolting. Uh, Ned, yes, thanks Hello. for coming. No, absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming, everybody. Yeah, because as, you, as you've outlined, it's uh, we're all doing this um, f for for rent stop, and that's that's exactly the point of this evening. So hopefully, we can all in, in, in enjoy ourselves, and then you guys get something tangible out of it at the end Absolutely. of the day. Yep. Yes. Um, the first thing I want to say is you you never appear to sit still. Apart from right now, <laughs> whenever, I, whenever I listen to a podcast of yours or um, look at social media, you, you're, you're, you're never around. So last week you were in Germany. What were you doing there? Darts. Okay, darts. Right. I mean, not doing darts. I'm terrible at darts. I was talking about darts. I was talking about people who are really good at playing darts. I was okay. commentating on darts oh, for right, television. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So what was that? Darts. Just darts. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you want to know, it's the Euro do. it was the European Championship okay. um, of darts. Right. Uh, <laughs> Excellent. Good. Do, you want, do you want to know who won? Yes, I do. Oh, God, I've actually forgotten. <laughs> you offered it up. <laughs> I genuinely can't remember. It was, Fair it enough. Weird. was he Dutch? Or? Um, I can't remember. Okay, right. We won't go there any further. Okay. So, um, 
We're here predominantly to talk about yeah. 1923, Absolutely, the, yeah. the book yeah. uh, that came out in June 2023. Yes. Um, and um, I've read it. Um, it's abs- Has anyone brought it yet? Show of hands? Yes, yeah, a few. A few so Thank obviously you. there's books on sale here tonight as well afterwards. So please, uh, and there'll be a chance for Ned to sign them as well afterwards yeah. too. I should mention that. Um, so I've read it. It's an absolutely fantastic book. Um, how did how did it all start? Um, you writing this book? Darts. Excellent. Yeah. Well, quite. Um, no, ge- genuinely, and this is this is really strange. Actually, the the um, if you, if any of you have ever watched darts on the TV in in, in the UK um, over the last sort of ten fifteen years, you probably won't know the guy's name. But there's a there's a there's a wonderful man called John McDonald who's got terrific teeth. Who um who uh, introduces the darts players with this big elaborate walk-on onto the hockey, you know, along the lines of, now, ladies and gentlemen, the 16-time champion of the world, it's Phil the Power Taylor, and all that sort of thing, and then they come on. That's I'm his actually, job. I'm actually quite disappointed that wasn't the intro you gave me. I'm sorry, and yeah. <laughs> I didn't give you either, to be fair. <laughs> no, but he, yeah, if he's too expensive, we couldn't have hired him. Um, but he's a mate because I've worked with him for a while on the darts. Anyway, in, in the middle of this, like just heading into our second lockdown, and I hate to invoke the spectre of COVID, but that is the context in which this book came about. So heading into this time, three years ago exactly, in, into 2020, the autumn of 2020, m- number one, I'd, I'd just broken my arm um, quite dramatically by riding my bike into a ditch. Um, and so I was feeling a bit gloomy about that. And I was just gloomy about everything, as I'm sure a lot of us were. When John McDonald messaged me out of the blue with a little link uh, to an online auction and a lot uh, uh, that that was being auctioned at a London uh, auction house. And it happened to be, the auction house clearly didn't know what it was, but they knew it was a a reel of film and they, they knew it was kind of maybe the Tour de France. And that was about it. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I'd never tried to buy anything ever at auction before. And I kind of bid 100 quid. And I thought, well, what am I really going to go for? What's my maximum? 140. And I think I got it for 120 quid in the end. And because no one else was interested, really. And then I, so I bought this thing. And then uh, uh, a week or two later, it arrived in a jiffy bag, rolled through my front door, bounced around a bit and settled up next to the hot up pipe of a radiator. Mm-hmm. Um, which, by the way... Subsequently, I found out might well have burnt my entire house down because this is ancient nitrate film that, that right. burns without yes. ever ending. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I didn't know that at the time, and I didn't know anything about this. So, and I remember the day it arrived, and I kind of like struggled downstairs like Quasimodo with my broken arm, and, and picked up this 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 jiffy bag and kind of um, sort of ripped it open with my hand and got this reel of film out, and there it was, and it was 35 millimeter film, which is big. Right, so each frame is like that big. And I kind of, and it, the, the, the whole projecting canister was quite knackered and clearly original and quite dented. And I started to gently sort of un, unfurl it and hold it up against the light. And I could see that it was from the Tour de France. And I could see that instantly that it was extremely special. And I kind of knew there and then that this was one way or another. I didn't know how, but one way or another, this is going to take over my life for the foreseeable future. I mean, for, for someone like you who lives and breathes Tour de France, to, yeah. to, to open that film up and see that, I mean, I mean, you've kind of alluded to it, but you might be slightly underplaying it a bit. What was going on for you when you saw those frames? Yeah, I, it, I mean, it was 
just ta- oh, it's tantalizing because the, the, the images, as you hold them up and just looking at the still frames with my terrible eyesight and my middle-aged eyesight, they were, but I could see they were crystal clear. And then by the time, as we'll, we'll see the film shortly, and by the time you kind of spool past the elementary, the rudimentary map that outlines stage four of the 2023 Tour de France and actually get into the live action, so to speak, you know, when you roll past that bit and the first scene of all in this little two and a half minute film is just alive with this vibrant high definition detail and I could see uh, and I could see that I needed to see it move but I had no idea whether I would ever be able to do that because it was incredibly ancient brittle film and I didn't know whether it was going to be restorable so that was the next kind of you know step on the journey yeah um I, I just want to talk about the start to talk about the book. I mean, obviously that that became the kind of like the catalyst yeah. for this journey. Um, and after I read it and was thinking about tonight, I was trying to work out well, what's at the centre of this book? And I, the other way to phrase it is, well, what's it all about? The book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, so. When the book was published in June, I, I did a round of publicity with newspapers and, and stuff, um, and I should have been prepared for that question. Um, and I remember the first interview that I did uh, with a journalist who, who said, a perfectly legitimate question, what's the book about? <laughs> and I hadn't actually prepared myself for that question. Um, so I panicked, uh, because I didn't know, because there's so many different levels on which this book operates. But ultimately, I suppose I, I, I should distill it down to this book is about a thing that happened to me, ultimately. So it's very much written in the first person. It's in a, in a funny, like all my books are, actually. It's a, I filter the experience and everything that I threw my journey navigating this particular path. And in this particular case, it was, it describes and outlines a year and a half of my life, at least, in which uh, this found object took over my every waking thought. So what's, what's great about the book, that if you haven't bought it yet, you'll be able to buy it <coughs> tonight, um, is that on... Can't, can't stress that enough. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> on, the, on, on the back cover, there's, um, a, there's a QR code, and you can put your phone on it and watch the film, uh, which is fabulous. Um, and so, I mean, I've watched that film a number of times. So have uh, I. Yeah, I bet you have, yeah. Um, and... I wonder um, if we should watch so, it. Go on, yeah, I'd love to. It. So before yeah. you press play, let, let's yeah. see it in a minute. I have to credit my mum, who is here tonight, sitting in the front row. Um, my, my, my mum was one of the you know, long-suffering family members, and there are many in my family who had to, had to put up with me rambling about this project over the last three years. But very early on in the process, um, when I had finally established that this film was from had been shot on the 30th of June, 1923. Uh, I, <laughs> that was quite, a, I mean, I won't go into it now, but that is quite a process working that out. Um, I messaged on our family WhatsApp group. I said, this, this is from the, I know now, it's from the 30th of June, 1923, this film. And I kind of copied a little miniature copy of the film onto this WhatsApp group. And my mum messaged back some while later and she said, isn't it extraordinary? It's, they're almost, it's almost nearly exactly a hundred years ago. And uh, only then did I realize, and this was in you know, the, the, the winter of 2020, 2020, that she was absolutely right and that a centenary was coming up hard and fast. So bear in mind when we watch this now that 
this film dodged oblivion. So most of these projected Pathé newsreel films from the Tour de France were binned. They were simply thrown away. No one ever considered for a second that they would be of some uh, importance. So they were thrown away. Almost none exist from that era. And this one, I don't know how, dodged oblivion. And um, when I finally got it digitised and was able to... I was in receipt of a, 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 a QuickTime file and I had my laptop in front of me and, and I pressed play. This is what I saw. Now, I've, I've put some music on, on this particular edit simply because if we all just sit here for two and a half minutes in total silence, <laughs> it's going to be super awkward. Um, actually, I think the, the silence of the film is incredibly important. But in the context in which we're watching it, um, I've just, I've just, just to sort of alleviate our em embarrassment, I've, I've, put, I've put some music <laughs> on it. But, but, but if you can put yourself in, in my position there, this, this was a couple of months down the line, and suddenly this is what I saw. At this point in the proceedings, obviously, with the film playing, um, it's two and a half minutes long, uh, and the music playing as well, I will just do a jump forward in the edit to the end of the film. Um, and if you want to actually see the film yourself, if you've got a copy of the book, the QR code is in there. If not, you can follow, again, a link, which I'll put in the show notes. And that's it. So, uh, I've, I've, as I said, I watched this a few times, um, and it suddenly hit me. It's like this is the actual Tour de France. This is the actual Tour the de France. Actual Tour de France. Yeah. Um, and I, I wonder, Ned. I mean, you, you've watched it now, craned like that on uh, a big screen, but mm. you've watched it. What's What's your reaction when you, when you watch this film now, having been through this incredible journey in putting the book together? I think, of, um, I think of the connections that I made throughout the process of writing the book. And one of the missions in writing the book was to find out who this mysterious Beckman is. They've actually misspelt his name in the caption, which threw me off on a, a whole uh, sort of like uh, misguided path. But um, this, this Belgian rider who attacks on the bridge and who you see passing through this, this town of La Roche-Bernard in the final few images, um, he didn't win the stage. <laughs> Uh, he would subsequently go on to win two stages of the Tour de France in, in the following two years, in 24 and 25. Um, but he is a name that has been pr pr pretty much erased from history. So even though he was a very, very, very good rider, he wasn't a great rider. Um, and in Belgium, this cycling-obsessed nation, his, his, his uh, memory has been completely eradicated. And I, it became a mission of mine to find out everything that I could about him, both person on and off the bike, about his life, and then to contact his living descendants. And I did. And I have formed a friendship with his granddaughter, who's in her 60s now, um, and her husband, Wim. And um, I literally, it, it was, what, is it the 2nd of November today? Yes, it is. Yesterday was Theo Beckman's birthday. He was born on the 1st of November, 1896. And I sent... Um, Therese, his granddaughter, and, and Wim, her husband, uh, uh, just a happy birthday Theo message. Um, and they, they're, they're funny because they communicate sporadically with me. And they said, thank you very much. And you know what? 
we have just come back from La Roche Bernard. <laughs> and they have gone now to see where their where her grandfather attacked and has been memorialised on this on this bridge in this in this and it just moves me I, I don't even know why it moves me but it does well it moves me frankly Brilliant. I've just, I've just, <laughs> just uh, so I'm not going totally mad here no. just a little it's, bit but yeah, no, okay. you're not you know um, so <laughs> you 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 set out. I mean, there there were names and places yes. and people's names yep. on on in in the the uh, the, the links yes, on the film. Absolutely. And you do become as you read the book. You become please buy the book. You become really familiar with a lot of these places and the names as well. And you want to know about their lives and their stories. Um, so I, I wonder if when when you first watched it, did you recognise other people in the film? No, nothing, nothing. Right. Not only that, I thought that nothing would be knowable. You know, it, it, it seemed so long ago, it seemed grainy and black and white, it seemed like every rider looked the same. Mm. Like, how on earth would I, could I ever possibly tell? Uh, you know, I subsequently work out that all these riders, all the various teams that they, they rode for, you know, the team colours actually were light blue, scarlet, you know, yes. the, the, the yellow jersey, as I'm about to tell you, is in the film. And the yellow jersey as an institution was only four years old. It first came into existence in 1919. Um, but at first, I was so off-put by the unknowability of it all. But, you know, I had a pandemic. And I had, a, I had lockdown. And so I had lots of time in yes. order to set myself the task of, of literally trying to find, trying to squeeze that two minutes 30 dry yeah. of all the detail I could possibly ascertain. Yeah. And, and that's an ongoing process, by the way. That that long extended sequence in the middle of the film, where they're, they're riding on that very dusty road, and a lot of them are telling the camera to get out of the way because it's kicking up the dust. You can see right right in the distance on that shot. You can see two wind, windmills. Yeah, I mean they're tiny in the film. I've been to one of them. <laughs> of course uh, you have. Uh, in the summer, it's um. So th this couple who live just south of Van have um, bought one of those windmills and renovated it and um, basically built a house around it and they, they have a, a kitchen in the bottom of the windmill now. So, like, but uh, be being able to identify that exact windmill yes. was, yes. Qu was quite extraordinary and the fact that it still, it still stands. But, sorry, about, you know, identifying yeah, yes. the, the actual characters in the film. It took me a while, it took me a while, but I began to figure out who they were, some of them, not all of them. And one of the first characters I identified was this gentleman here, Nigel, in that opening scene in, in Van. And um, which this was, the, this was the scene I was talking about, you know, this kind of incredible tableau of life. I mean, how many hundreds of people there are in this? And the, the cafe at the corner that when the camera swings past it, that rather elegant lady comes out and sort of watches the who's she and the, the mystery of it all. So I'm kind of looking at this thinking, who are all these people? But my, I can't help but look at this chap here, right? Standing there with his collar turned up and his cap and his shiny shoes. He's very well dressed and he kind of looks important. He's standing next to this extraordinary tall gentleman here and when the film actually rolls, you can see right at the beginning that they are in discussion with one another. They're talking. And this well-dressed gentleman here, you can see his arms are like that. He's holding a bit of paper that you can fleetingly glimpse like that, just ever so slightly. And at a certain point, a second or two into the film, he, uh, 
exchanges a very quick word with this very tall gentleman here. And this very tall gentleman, who I subsequently found out was a, a guy called Robert Desmarais, who's the commercial director of the Tour de France, known as Big Bob. <laughs> Le Big Bob. Le Big Bob. Uh, he, takes, he takes a dozen strides out into the middle here, where they're being held at this checkpoint, because they had to stop at checkpoints all the way through to make sure that they didn't jump on trains and cheat. So um, all the, they all sign their names to say they were in Lorient. And... He stands there and he basically gives them the order to recommence the Tour de France. And I know that that is big Bob Desmarais because he's two foot taller than anyone else. And every newspaper report, uh, the local newspapers, all say that Le Big Bob gave the order for the race to restart in Lorient. But a lot of people also say, a lot of journalists also say, that Henri Desgranges, who was the founder of the Tour de France, already quite an old man, um, was also present at the checkpoint in Lorient. That's Henri Desgranges. <laughs> and like the very fact that I've just we've just had an intake of breath here yes. Yes. tells me that you're on board with why that's important. This man is a titan of French cultural he's a cultural icon in France. He created with others, but he is widely credited for creating the Tour de France in 1903, which is to this day one of the most important you know symbols of France. And it was his idea. And right up until the late 1930s, he was the first director of the Tour de France. This autocratic, incredible figure. And believe me, I've searched. I have not yet found any other film of Henri de Grange. Annoyingly, he's got his back to the camera. <laughs> he could have turned round if he'd had the decency. Um, but without a shadow of doubt, that's Henri de Grange. Which... I mean, just fascinated and thrilled me. And if you, if you have the Tour de France in your blood, which I do, that is just, I mean, there's nothing bigger than that for me. That's, that's it, that's it. He's, he's, that's the embodiment of the Tour de France and he's in my film. And he landed in a jiffy bag. And he could have blown up next to my radio. And, and this, this is exactly why it's just such a ridiculous story. I mean, from the film coming and everything coming together. I mean, yeah. serendipity is, just doesn't even come close. No, it doesn't come, no, know? yeah. Um, to get to the point we're at today, um, when when you when you look at the, the the threads and the weaving and this connects to this and this connects to this and it's it's just it's utterly mind blowing, you know. Yeah. And then yeah. you get onto the the riders. And then the riders. So in that in that sequence that I was talking about, um, Nigel, if we can jump through to the next um, sort of still frame from the film that we that we picked out. So in this in this long sequence where there, by the way, you can see the windmills. <laughs> um, there are there are two there are three there are actually four riders who I was eventually able to to identify. I won't go into who they all are. Suffice to say, I'll pick out the main two. This guy, I figured out like there was something different about this guy with his beaky nose there, and the fact that he everyone else is wearing dark clothing, or at least how that's that's how the camera of 1923 you know records their clothing. This jersey is different. Right? And it took me a while to realise that that's the maillot jaune. That's the yellow jersey of the Tour de France. He's the race leader. And um, when I'd figured out which edition of the Tour de France was it and which stage it was, I realised that was uh, a, a young Italian rider making his debut at the Tour de France called Ottavio Bottecchia, who would become, the following year, the first ever Italian uh, to win the Tour de France. 
And it's partly in his memory and his honour that next year in 2024, 100 years after Bottecchia's victory at the Tour de France, Italy will host the start of the Tour de France in Florence for the first ever, ever time uh, because of him. And there he is, Ottavio Bottecchia. Um, I won't tell you what happens to him, <laughs> but some of you have read the book. It's extraordinary. Suffice to say, he has a short life. Um, he doesn't win the race this year. He damn nearly does. He damn nearly does by accident, by mistake. Um, and and uh, there are extraordinary scenes when this Italian rider comes close to the Italian border in Nice a few days later when they arrive there, where the tifosi just come straight over the border into France and virtually manhandle him off the race. The next year, actually, when he when he comes to that stage in Nice, because every year it was exactly the same stages, he was also wearing the yellow jersey, but he decided not to wear it on that day because he was so afraid that the Italian fans would literally lift him off the bike and carry him away <laughs> that he would lose the race. Anyway, there he is, quite identifiably, the maillot jaune. He loses the yellow jersey on that day and then regains it a, a few days later. But he is fascinating, a war hero from the First World War. All of these riders, one way or another, are affected by their experiences of the Great War, which is only sort of five years uh, previously. And then, and then this, this man here, who a lot of them are kind of playing up to the camera, aren't they? They're smiling, they're kind of doing this, that and the other. is kind of ignoring it, just trying to stay safe. This man here, obdurately holding the right-hand side of the road, always struck me as kind of interesting. He doesn't look up at the camera. He's not interested in any of the messing around. And he's got this huge, can you see this massively tall rider here who's just riding behind him? It took me a while, but then I realized that these were the Pellissier brothers. That's Francis Pellissier, who was uh, 80 kilos and six foot three or something like that. And this is his uh, older brother, Henri Pellissier, who was one of the greatest riders of the pre-war and post-war era, um, bar none. He won all the big races apart from the Tour de France. Um, for seven years prior to 1923, Belgium had won the Tour de France. Seven successive victories for Belgium, <laughs> winning the Tour de France. This is really early on. And like, he was the great French hope this year, Henri Pellissier, and he would go on to win the Tour de France that year and end that sequence of Belgian victories. An extraordinary man. And like Bottecchia, he wouldn't last much longer either. So the way that these two men met their end, I won't go into here because it would spoil some of the revelations in the book. But both of them in their different ways are towering figures of this great era of the Tour de France and fundamentally important to the outcome of this particular edition of the Tour de France. And their experiences and their lives speak incredibly clearly of the era in, into which they're born because they are sons of this particular time in human history and European history. And for as much as the book is about the 1923 Tour de France, it's, a, it's about a lot more than that besides. Us. Well, if you're a long-time listener, you might know that I've been drinking AG1 for about a year, just getting on for a year, a little bit less perhaps. Um, and when I started drinking AG1 daily, I could tell straight away that it was going to be a habit that would stick with me, uh, just part of my morning routine 
uh, drinking the AG1 down and uh, starting my day in the right in the right way. That's because AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement that supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. Since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition, continuously refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health, as it did mine, as it did uh, a number of my friends. And I can tell as well from the uh, Never Strays Far listeners that are plenty of you have taken it up um, as well. AG1 has a team of doctors and scientists. It's tested for 950 contaminants and uh, certified for sport uh, through NSF. Curiously enough, sounds a bit like Never Strays Far. So, if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash neverstraysfar. That's drinkag1.com slash neverstraysfar. Check it out. Thank you. Um, Yes, uh, there, there was one question... I had a, about the actual Tour de France, um, and I learned a lot. But can you just kind of explain, in case you know, for others that aren't, don't know, how the Tour de France then differs to the Tour de France we know now? <laughs> you've, got, you've got 12 seconds. <laughs> it was a lot longer. So yeah. that stage, stage four of the 1923 Tour de France, was 412 kilometres. <clears throat> the following, the, every other day they'd have a rest day. They, they simply had to rest the next day. So just for con- context, uh, an average stage now would be... Less than half of that. Less than half a, of that. Uh, right. if, I mean, if a stage is over 200 kilometres now, 200 kilometres, it's deemed to be a long stage. Right. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. as a consequence of that, they started at 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning. They rode, they rode for the first, you know, whatever that was, up until the sun rose at 5.36, 6 maybe in the morning. So the first... Four, five, six, four, five hours. We're in the darkness, and then the sun would eventually come up, and they wouldn't finish until close to sundown yeah. in the evening. It was that. It was that big of uh, an adventure. Some of the stages, also worth noting, around about that time, for five consecutive years, the Tour de France route was absolutely identical. Right. So it literally hugged the coast and went round fifteen stages, thirty days of racing. If you factor in that every other day was a rest day. 15 stages, average distance, around about 400, 400 and something kilometres. I think the longest stage was stage five every year, and that was something like 486 kilometres. It's just superhuman, isn't it? Really? I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. It's effectively London to Newcastle, isn't it? Sometimes. But obviously they had the, the entourage and the teams and the spare bikes and all that, didn't they? <laughs> and they, there, was a rule, there was a rule that they had to start and finish... So whatever kit they started with, they had to finish with. That was a rule. I, don't, I have no idea why it was a rule, but it was a rule. And they'd get penalised if they didn't have all their blown inner tubes, you know, still with them. If they just jettisoned it at the side of the road, they'd get docked a minute or something like that. Um, so, so that was crazy. Um, absolutely. absolutely crazy. They had bikes that, that with no freewheel, so yeah. you couldn't just, you know, if you took your... Like, so descending off a mountain, you'd yes. have to go like that. So the pedals are still so the pedals around. are still yeah, yeah. going like that. Lovely. So yeah. there's no freewheel. The pedals keep just keep turning, and they did have gears. Yes, two, <laughs> two gears. So their their rear wheel would have a, a, a slightly bigger and a slightly smaller 
um, cog on each side of the of the hub, and then you would have to dismount the entire wheel and spin it round and put it back in the, into the frame to change between the two. So quite similar to now then, right? Yeah, quite, yeah, yeah fairly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fairly similar. Um, you, you kind of hinted at the, the, the setting in terms of time for, for the film and the race. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, before I ask that question, um, yeah. I, I, I just recall, um, I, was, I was reading a, a Telegraph review of the book and they, their headline described the book as cycling on cocaine. That's how they described yeah. the book. I mean, <coughs> what, what? I mean, it is. I mean, it's just. I mean, it's all over the place. The book, in a good way, um, <laughs> uh, because it covers so many. Oh, that's awful. It, it covers so many bases. But I mean, all over the place in a good way. Andy Robertson. Yeah, you could have that. Yeah, um, but what? Why? What? What's the reason for that? Do you think? So, you know, during the course of my inquiries, once I'd, you know kind of reached the end of what was knowable about what was going on in the Tour de France. That, and that took me a long time. So by scouring online resources of French, the, French, the extraordinary online resources that are available in the of the French press and the way that the race was covered. I mean, you know, 20 different newspapers would cover in detail every stage of the Tour de France. So there was a lot to go at. Yeah. But once I'd kind of wrung that dry a little bit, my eye, my eye was constantly caught by what else was going on in these newspapers. What other stories were going on that July in 2023? What was happening in the rest of the world? And the interconnectivity of it all. And I started to learn stuff that I, to my great shame, I knew nothing about. And I suddenly thought, what the hell? For example, the fact that Belgium and France in 1923 had just marched into, in, the, in January, they marched into the, Ruhr, the Rhine and then the Ruhr Valley in Germany. Um, and had gone about effectively confiscating Germany's entire industrial output. So all the steel and the coal that Germany was producing in its industrial heartland was put on trains at gunpoint and uh, taken back to France as repayment yeah. under the, the, the punitive terms of the Treaty of Versailles, with all the consequences that, that, that you might imagine. I mean, I, can, can I read one quote from the Please, book, if yeah, that's all right? Yeah. And um, can you put my glasses on? Yeah, put your glasses on. Oh, man. Um, and this is a quote, and it says, It is and was an unstable world full of extremes. Europe in flux. Populations hoping, despairing, retreating and rioting. Governments looking over their shoulders. Streets becoming battlegrounds. Now as then. And I, I read that and I thought, in a hundred years' time, someone could write that about now. You know, and I, that's, that, I mean, that for me, I don't know if you, I don't think you want to say about that, just another angle to this book. Yeah, and it wasn't one, this wasn't intended, it just kept chiming. Yeah. You know, the more I found out about the world in Europe in 1923, which I would, you know, I tentatively, I tentatively reached the conclusion, I think, that maybe I don't articulate, but I think you glean from the book, that in 1923, you're kind of, finally consigning the Great War to history, like it's done. But synchronous with that is the starting pistol to the Second World War. And in November 1923, talk about starting pistols, Goebbels picks up a pistol and fires it into the roof of a beer keller in Munich. 
because Adolf Hitler is intent on seizing power in Bavaria. Uh, it doesn't work, but shortly after that, he's in prison and he starts to write Mein Kampf. That happens in 1923. 1923 is the absolute peak of German hyperinflation. Yeah? Um, it, there, 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 are thing, there are things, there are tectonic plates shifting in 1923. And then, so, not only that, but, it, you know, I couldn't avoid the fact that one of the big features of, of the post-war years was Spanish flu. And I was writing, I was writing this book in the middle of, a, of the next epidemic to hit Western Europe. So I, I didn't go looking for that, but it kept coming and finding me. Um, and and that, that sense of, after a relatively long period of stability, the Belle Epoque, nation states growing, and you know, the kind of, the, the way that Europe was mapped, everything falling apart very suddenly. Yeah. Um, and and this, this kind of deep insecurity that affected peoples and suddenly the polarization of opinion and this proliferation of extreme opinion as well across the board not just in politics but in art and in all sorts of other ways um it struck a chord <laughs> struck a chord absolutely um i couldn't help but notice um the uh, the name dropping the historical name dropping Massive, in the book massively important um absolutely um <laughs> because just reflecting not just the political uh, situation and backdrop but also the cultural backdrop as well and there are I, I mean there are lots of names but I'll, I'll leave you to choose the ones you wanted to share now oh, well I mean it's just they just they just <laughs> they just pop out of the woodwork it's absolutely extraordinary as soon as you open that chapter what, what's going on in 1923 and in particular in Paris so Paris has had many great eras in its lifetime as a city I think you know it's a city I feel incredibly incredibly fond of I was just there last week before I went to Germany and loved it again but this was a this was a particular highlight in Paris's um, significance, I think, and it was the streets of Paris were populated by um, some of the greatest artists and thinkers, you know, across the board. You know, the, the, um, visual artists. Chagall comes back from Russia and resettles into Paris and, and starts to starts to produce some of his greatest work. Um, and a young Ernest Hemingway is making his way in Paris at that point, writing incredibly pertinent articles about the occupation of the Rhine and the Ruhr for the Toronto Daily Press. And at the same time, he is visiting the velodromes of Paris, and he is literally watching Théophile Birkman and Ottavio Botecchia and following their careers, you know. And the way that all these artists seem to have... What, what really struck me about that sort of era, in, particularly in French culture, is that there weren't these stark divisions that we seem to have now between uh, areas of human endeavour. So sport is kind of like, now we've got ourselves into this position where it's, sort of like, it's like somehow separate from the, the rest of the world, right. as Gary Lineker has found out, <laughs> you know? Uh, I get it occasionally if I stray a little bit out of kind of like commenting on sport, you know, yes. stick to cycling. Mm. But back, back then in the 1920s, you know, th th all these th art, sport, philosophy, politics, the whole lot was just jumbled up. Yeah. And it was legitimate and indeed almost incumbent upon people to have an opinion on everything and to be engaged in everything. There was no contradiction. You weren't pigeonholed into these very different, various different ways. So a really good example, uh, my final name drop, is in, in Paris in 1923 is Ho Chi Minh. 
right? He's a young, he's just learning his ways. He's learning French. His French by now is perfect. And he's becoming a communist, right? So the police have got an eye on him. And at the same time, he's taking the time, he's working in, he's absolutely poor as a mouse. He's living in abject poverty, working like George Orwell would go on to do as a plongeur in, you know, in a, in a, in a big French hotel. And at the same time, he's taking the time to write letters to French sporting newspapers, imploring the French Prime Minister at the time, Poincaré, to formulate a law which prohibits the use of English in boxing reportage. <laughs> this is Ho Chi Minh. Well, it's what he's known for. It's what he's known for. He said it's unforgivable that you can use the word le knockout. Le manager, he's railing about it. So it's absolutely extraordinary that, you know, that, that can occupy the thought. And by the way, by the way, on the, on, the, on the very morning, on the very morning that film gets shot, Ho Chi Minh has fled Paris. It took him a while to get from Paris to Berlin to Hamburg, where he jumped on a boat. And then he sailed on this boat to Lenin, uh, uh, Petrograd, as it was known then. And at exactly the same time that the riders start that stage, he is disembarking in Petrograd. And he's about to take a train to Moscow to set up a meeting with Lenin. It's just, you know, all this is going on in real time. So I have two, two more questions, and they're a bit more about you. Um, and then, I oh know, <laughs> strap yourself in. Um, uh, the first one, you mentioned, when, when you're talking about the film, you don't call it the film. You refer to it as my film. That's bad, that isn't it? Sorry. No, it's not. It's and, but my film, and I mean, when when you read the book, there's lots about ownership and all that stuff that comes up. But it's clear; it clearly came across to me, and it, it made me jump a few times when I read it because it, it clearly said to me that this this was something deeply, deeply personal for you, or grew to be personal the more you yeah. just immerse yourself in it. Absolutely, but in terms of the ownership of the film, I yes. I, I um very quickly established because Ed actually says it on the margins on the sprocket line Pathé Cinema France so I was in a funny position where I knew eventually I'd have to open up a conversation with Pathé Cinema France uh, because I uh, spoke to a lawyer and he said they actually own the intellectual property still after all this time um, but they don't own the film like I own the film <laughs> yeah. I've got something they lost um, so we had to have a bit of a negotiation and in the end when they realised quite how significant the film was they were brilliant um, and to my great uh, this is one of the things I'm most you know I talk about the, the kind of like the knock on the long tail of this book you know in terms of the Beckman family literally messaging me yesterday to say they were in La Roche Bernard but also I know now that that reel of film is stored in a temperature controlled vault in Paris alongside Pathé Cinema's archives. It's gone back to them, you know, and they have, we reached this wonderful understanding and they, they, would, they sent me a little photograph of it just sitting in the vaults and it's, it's kind of back where it belongs, you know. And, and the, the French are very emotional about stuff like that, you know, the patrimoine, the, this is their, this is their in, inheritance yes. and yeah. it belongs there. And I think I know the answer to this question. Um, having gone through this journey, having acquired your film um and <laughs> their film now yes yeah. <laughs> um and gone through writing the book and do, do you feel resolved 
Um, that's a really good question. N no, um, no, because the book has has, has has opened so many question marks that I can't even begin to answer now. And I'm learning all the time. And there are there are things that I've subsequently learned, little details, little bits and pieces in the in in my book even that I've con slightly small conclusions about details that I know that I got wrong, which is an inevitable byproduct of the amount of digging that I did. So no, um, I would I don't think it's a journey that will ever quite end or leave me as odd as that sounds it's um it, it genuinely was quite a profound experience they were special that's a special generation you know and i you know I, we, we spoke about it i think one of the profoundly moving things about the film that we're going to see again in a second is that when you look at them not one of those riders men almost almost without exception in their early 30s or their mid-20s not one of them wouldn't have experienced um, uh, war, bereavement, injury, hardship um, uh, uh, in multiple different ways in their young lives. They were absolutely scarred by what they'd just been through. And they were all European riders, obviously, in that generation. And, you know, this was, this was to coin Hemingway's phrase, this was the, the lost generation. And as a result, I think they were fascinating individuals fascinating individuals Nigel could we watch the film again thank you let me give you a little bit of a commentary with it this time as well so I mean not a commentary that would be weird <laughs> I'll try and point a few things out as we watch it again this time so that's it 412 kilometers from Brest which we don't see so the first thing that we see is Lorient which is that checkpoint there okay this is the only reason we this is the first scene is because Daylight, the sun had come up. Like before that, it was dark, so the cameras wouldn't have been able to film it. That's Big Bob. He's strode across there. He's released the race. That's Henri de Gange's driver. That's the owner of the Café Glue, I think, who's just walked out. And the Breton, you see the Breton traditionally dressed waiters there. Now, a stills photographer steps into the frame here and takes a picture. And you'll read the book. I think at one point I found that picture. This is the this is the, 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 the two windmills. You can see there's a windmill right on the right, and both those windmills are still there. The one on the right is half the height that it was because they've nicked all the stones from it. That one there has been restored and a French family lived there, and all of that area there is, is built up now. That's a little town. That's Pellissier. He does wave the camera. That's his huge brother there, Francis. That's Jean Alavoine laughing away on the right, and this is Botecchia, who didn't speak any French at all, the Italian rider. Just, he was just on his own, just like everyone else ignoring him. And the camera pulls away. That lady pushing her bike. So suddenly Beckman escapes and passes the bridge of La Roche-Bernard on his own. Now if you watch very carefully, there's two riders on the bridge. You can just see Beckman there, but look, there's a rider behind him. There. There. And it took me a while to realise that that is not a rider in the Tour de France. That's just a punter. <laughs> He's trying to keep up with Beckman and he can't. <laughs> so there's another checkpoint here. There's this one gendarme. I know his name. We found out who he was. Um, and he's ushering everyone back. And Beckman, you can see how hard he's turning that gear. Because that is a gear that is only good for actually riding along at 25 miles an hour. You know, you, when you start, it's like riding a track bike. It's like on a fixed wheel bike. 
I know who owned that garden there. <laughs> and this final scene is in a, a little hamlet called Missillac, uh, La Sûreté, and it's about 25 kilometers south of La Roche-Bernard, and this is the where Beckman's history is extinguished. And that's it. Uh, Ned, um, I think I speak on behalf of everyone. It's been absolutely fascinating, incredible, entertaining, enlightening, emotional. It, generally, so it's such a moving story. Your story, their story, how it all entwines. And we're, we're massively, massively grateful uh, pleasure. that you came down tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, Ned Bolton. Thank you. Cheers.